Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Friday, December 12th, 2008, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today is Paul Rogers, MD, FCCM, Professor of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Dr. Rogers will be presenting a keynote session during the 38th Critical Care Congress in Nashville, Tennessee, entitled, Teaching Medicine is an Art, Valuing it is Critical, and we'll be discussing some of the theme of that presentation. Dr. Rogers uh, was recently awarded the AOA Robert J. Glazer Distinguished Teaching Award, which recognizes the significant contributions to medical education made by gifted teachers, and as such, we will be gaining some insights from him into optimal critical care and fellow education. I've had an opportunity to work with Dr. Rogers personally as part of the RICU course from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and I'm very, very happy that he has taken some time out of his schedule to join us today. Thank you, Dr. Rogers, for being part of the podcast. It's my pleasure. I thought we'd begin uh, by letting the listeners know a little bit more about your personal background, uh, where you trained, how long you've been at Pittsburgh, and perhaps uh, what kind of training you have. Certainly. My training is in critical care medicine. I received that training at the National Institutes of Health with a background in internal medicine, which I received at the University of Virginia. Shortly after completing my fellowship at the NIH in 1987, I was recruited to the University of Pittsburgh by Dr. Aki Grinvik to assume an assistant professor role and I kind of came into my role as an educator by accident. He asked me to start an elective in critical care medicine for fourth-year medical students in 1987. That's when I first began um, my role as a clinician educator. Dr. Grinvick, in, I believe, 1968, came to the University of Pittsburgh, and after completing a anesthesia residency and then a critical care medicine fellowship was asked by Dr. Saffer to develop a critical care training program and also to be director of a 15-bed ICU. And Dr. Grinvick felt that in order to provide the very best care to patients, Dr. Grinvick felt that uh, it needed to be multidisciplinary in nature. He recruited very uh, individuals to participate, and now we have a program that is made up of fellows in surgical critical care, anesthesia critical care, medical critical care, and emergency medicine. So there's a diversity of um, individuals in our training program. Separate, a little bit off the topic again, is I uh, and and related to our current interview is that I know that Pittsburgh is actually on the forefront of using iPods for the fellows and things I was reading on your website. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. We have a core lecture series which starts in July and goes through probably December, and then it covers each one of the major organ systems and critical aspects of the issues that need to be covered under the 
competency which we identified as medical knowledge. We expect that fellows attend 80% of the lectures. However, we recognize that given the ADR work week and the need to be out by noon and sometimes clinical demands in the ICU, that they may not be able to attend. So every single one of our lectures is videotaped uh, and audio recorded. We have a technical assistant who downloads it into our uh, internet and then the fellows can download it into iPods. And they have found these invaluable. Then at the end of the year, we burn a disc that has all of our curriculum on it for the fellows. So, and, and the feedback has been positive? Very positive. Um, and the video is also on the iPods? Yes. Great. Um, and so you're able to check that they're... Well, li- the PowerPoint right. component of it. Right. And you're able to uh, check that they're actually listening to the lectures and things? And well, t- they have to sign in for every single lecture. If they are unable to attend 80% of them, then they have to have at least watch the others on the Internet or on their iPods. And we sort of do this with a carrot and stick mode. There is an expectation by the RRC, not only that you are presenting lectures, but the fellows are attending. And if they find out they are so tied up with clinical activities that they are unable to attend, doesn't meet the expectation. And so we expect our faculty to assume the fellow roles during the one hour during lunchtime uh, so that the fellows can attend the lectures. But the overall feedback about the, the iPods has been a positive one. Yeah. The, um, this sort of dovetails into the next thing I want to discuss with you, which Pittsburgh is sort of way out in front on in terms of simulation. And I know you have a world-famous center there. And can you talk for a little bit about how that uh, training center is integrated into the Critical Care Fellowship? The Weiser Institute, or Peter M. Winter Institute for Education and Research, was opened in 1994. We had had simulation technology preceding, but it wasn't in a formal space where specific courses were ordered, uh, were offered. I found, and earlier we were talking about what I think is one of the most important aspects of education is not just the tool that is used, but also to ensure that you are addressing what adult learners do to learn best. And although the lecture format is very efficient, I'm not sure that an hour or even a day later people remember the majority of the content. And if you can do things that appeal to adult learners, such as getting them to do hands-on training where they can see the immediate effects of their intervention, where they can evaluate whether it's working, where they are challenged by faculty on their decision-making, and where they have to defend it, then they are much more likely to retain that information, I believe. I also think that simulation is efficient for teaching large group of fellows. I might, for example, be on call for weeks without ever seeing a patient with severe COPD who needs to be intubated and then subsequently develops autopeep and develops pulseless electrical activity. However, I can make that point to 15 fellows uh, very efficiently and I think effectively. It gives them the opportunity to experience rare life-threatening conditions that they may not see and they can make errors and there are no consequences to a patient. 
we had talked earlier about patient safety, and it must be integrated throughout the curriculum. And so I think that's what a great thing is about simulation. And then they can repeat it over and over until they are able to master the behaviors that we want them to learn. And I had two questions about that, and then I guess we can go more formally into patient safety. Is your uh, simulation center used for both sort of scenarios but also procedural, like central lines and, and intubations? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I'd be happy to. We have workshops here where we train our fellows central line insertion, bronchoscopy, difficult airway management. And then we have one room set up like either a hospital room or an intensive care unit where we teach scenarios such as unstable atrial flutter or the management of sepsis. And so we are doing the procedural training early in the year before we let the fellows go out and act independently The scenarios are to teach complicated aspects of the management, and we also have a crisis management course where we teach them how to be more effective in codes, how to be more effective with communication, identifying people that need to perform certain responsibilities, closing the loop. I don't know about you, but when I was a resident and a fellow and I was running codes, I always felt like I knew ACLS protocols, and I couldn't figure out why nothing ever went the way I wanted it to. And I think it's because an important aspect is missing from ACLS, and that's the crisis management communication component. Yeah, I mean, to reemphasize your point, you know, I've been attending now for seven years, and it, it takes a lot to be able to walk into the chaos that is a code and say, you know, I know nothing about what's going on here. I'm in charge now. Exactly. And <laughs> um, my other... Um, my other question was, I know that we were actually recently speaking with Dr. Pronovost and his sort of international focus on patient safety, and I was wondering how, over the years, you've integrated that more into your critical care fellowship, and if you want to talk about that. Yes. I think that as you put together a curriculum, a foundation has got to be patient safety. We, or I was trained in an environment where, what, see one, do one, teach one, and I don't think you can do that anymore. You have to ensure that the trainees at the bedside are competent to perform whatever procedures are getting ready to occur. And we do that both through the simulation, we do it through our workshops, and we have also identified a group of procedures which have to have direct faculty supervision and evaluation and successful completion before the fellows are allowed to do them independently. And we track that through an online eval program so that if a fellow is doing an intubation, the faculty will be sent a list of specific, objectable, measurable behaviors that the fellow must have performed in order to be able to pass that specific procedure. And then once they have reached the level that we have determined that they are now proficient, they may function independently. Um, One of the other topics I wanted to ask you about as as an educator is 
the recent, I guess within the last five years or so, this concept of the ACGME core competencies. And I guess my question to you is, you know, every residency and fellowship has to deal with these, but what would be your perspective on what's right about the competencies? What would you want to have changed and how has it changed the way you've focused your education, if at all? Well, I think education is more structured. You, you know, going back into the early part of the 1900s, there have been repeated calls for improved curriculum development by numerous societies. And it was only uh, with the development of the competencies was it more formalized. And they have picked out six things that we have to address. And I think that by getting it clear, it allows us to focus in on what needs to be taught. And as you know, every residency now has to address medical knowledge, patient care, interpersonal communication skills, professionalism, practice-based learning, and systems-based practice. And in particular, I think that there has been a greater focus on interpersonal communication skills and systems-based practice, which is getting at the heart of patient safety. So I think those are really positive aspects. And what you had asked me in an email about Cobatrice and how it fit into this, right. you know, those are the uh, domains that were developed by the competency-based training and intensive care in Europe. I think that the more you move away from simple examinations and more to problem solving, more to hands-on management, you get a better idea whether or not your trainee has learned what you wanted them to learn. When we give a lecture, at the end of the lecture, I don't know whether my fellow can go to the bedside and do this now, but after giving them the knowledge and then taking them into the simulation center and seeing what their thought processes are, I can go back in and adjust whether it's a knowledge issue, whether it's an analysis issue, and help them be more successful. And then we have evaluation systems at the bedside that address specific observable behaviors. So I think it's a little bit of each one and that we need to broaden our curriculum so that we're not just teaching all of critical care in didactic lectures and evaluating based upon test performance, because I'm not sure that that always integrates into the fact that we have successfully taught our fellows. And so is, is the majority of your evaluation now integrated into the simulation centers? Is that what you're trying to say? For each one of the workshops that I was describing, fellows then have to go back in and there's a checklist and they have to sit there and demonstrate specific behaviors, whether it is in a ventilator workshop where we've hooked up the ventilators to lung models and they have to adjust PEEP or adjust flow or adjust rate to specific endpoints, or there is a chest tube insertion workshop. So there are certain things that they have to demonstrate um, in workshops. Then there is also evaluation in the Sim Center. That is correct. I thought we'd conclude the podcast today by letting you talk about, I think, a very important issue that affects uh, many of us, which is this concept of the promotability of being a clinician educator rather than 
being a researcher um, in an academic medical center. And uh, with your experience at Pittsburgh, maybe if you could sort of shed some insight, that would be uh, terrific. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do that because that is where the title of my talk comes from. I think that in order to teach in a complex ICU with difficult ethical issues and a rapidly expanding knowledge base and do it in a safe way, there's an art to that. And if we are going to ensure that we're training a future generation of excellent clinicians, people who do that well should be valued. And I think that the challenges for the future are that we are dealing with, you were talking earlier about, um, I believe, Dr. Angus's article in JAMA on the valuation of projected workforces for critical care and pulmonary care in the future. And, you know, by 2020, there's going to be a deficit of 22% of of faculty. And we have fellows. The faculty are going to be in fewer supply. They're going to be doing more clinical activity and in an environment where who knows what the work hour requirement is going to be. And you can't just add teaching onto the end of someone's day. There has to be a way to protect time so that they're dedicated and that they are fulfilling the departmental mission of training physicians well. And there are a couple of things that they're doing at the University of Pittsburgh that I think are pretty unique. One of them is that there are specific educational tracks that get you promoted to associate and full professor. I think one of the challenges to be promoted in that role is that it the onus is on the person being promoted to develop a educational portfolio that documents the effectiveness of their training. When you've been someplace for six or seven years and you are asked to go back and pull all the documents that talk about your teaching capabilities, that is a very difficult issue. However, if you're mentored early in the, your career and told what kinds of data you need to be collecting and how to present it so that when it comes up for promotion, your case is made for you. The difficult thing about promotion through education is you can't just write down in your CV, I'm a good teacher. You right. The question is CV. measuring it, right? How, how do you measure that or how do you quantitate that, right? You do several things. You document lectures that you did. You develop document courses that you have or curriculum development. And it's important that when you go and do those things, afterwards you collect your evaluations, what people thought about the lecture or how you taught at the bedside. And you can put it together for year after year. And you just develop a portfolio that says, this is what I'm doing. And have you sort of seen that process change over the years at the University of Pittsburgh? Absolutely. There was no defined educational tract when I was recruited here. It sounds like more and more universities are heading towards such a track. Well, I think that people re- recognize that most people can't be excellent in every single of those aspects, education, research, and clinical activity. And so it is important to develop that sort of And that's why I think departmental chairs have to value those who are doing a good job and give them protected time because these issues which I have described are time-consuming. 
And like I said, they can't be tacked on at the end of the day. I believe that probably the biggest challenge that we're going to deal with in the future is going to be the resident work hours and how to deal with decreasing work hours, especially, as you know, the Institute of Medicine's recent recommendation, if you're going to be on call for 24 hours, you have to go to sleep for five hours a night. Right. I'm not sure that as we recognize stress and burnout and anxiety in our fellows, that decreasing work hours and developing sort of a patchwork approach to covering them with not clearly defined mechanisms for handoff is really going to end up being the safest thing for our patients. Great. We've had a tremendous opportunity today to speak with Dr. Paul Rogers, who is a professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He will be giving a keynote session during the upcoming 38th Critical Care Congress entitled Teaching Medicine is an Art, Valuing it is Critical, and we are really grateful to have him here today. Thank you so much, Dr. Rogers, for taking some time to be with us. It is my pleasure. This concludes our podcast for Friday, December 12, 2008. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. An email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Society's annual Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year, drawing more than 5,000 professionals from around the world. Throughout this five-day event, more than 300 educational sessions, workshops, keynote addresses, panel discussions, symposiums, and more will be offered on broad and specialized topics in critical care. The high-level programming of Congress speaks to all members of the critical care team, exploring the issues and clinical topics that affect most of their daily environment. Mark your calendar for SCCM's 38th Critical Care Congress to be held January 31st to February 4th, 2009 at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. Visit www.sccm.org for further information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.